Welcome to Take Your Stand, the podcast of Here I Stand Ministries. I'm your host, Luke Seibert. Let's explore more of what it means to live out the gospel by clinging to the Word and to one another. Sometimes in Christian circles, we'll use uh, certain phrases or terms, and we may not fully understand what they are. Or maybe we have a vague kind of idea about the concept, but don't have a deep, thorough understanding of it. It's important for us to look at the terms sometimes that we use to make sure that we're understanding what we're saying. Is this a helpful thing to understand Scripture, or maybe does it have some issues? One phrase that here gets tossed around a lot is Calvinism, and it, it held up a lot of times as a, as a measure of, of authentic Christianity or, or good Christianity. And is, is it helpful? Is it not? What, Or even more basically, you know, what really is Calvinism? So I wanted to take the time today to, to dig into this. Calvinism is, is helpful to be understood in the five points of an acronym called TULIP, T-U-L-I-P, which has been developed a little bit over time but it summarizes the basic tenets of what Calvinism is and how to understand it. So we'll go through these. So T, a total depravity. Uh, what this means is that the fall has affected every part of who we are as humans. It's not just affected our souls that we're, we're fallen, that we are separated from God, but that our, our mind has been affected. Our heart has been affected. Um, our body is decaying. Different aspects of what this means. And there are several verses that point to the corruptness that we have. Uh, Jeremiah 17.9 says this, The heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? We certainly know that, that our hearts definitely can lead us, can uh, <clears throat> are, are deceitful. And uh, we can't just fully rely upon them that they have been affected by the fall. We're consider what Paul says in Romans 7.18. He says, for I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. And now total depravity, it doesn't mean that every person who does not have the Holy Spirit, every person who's not saved, is corrupt or depraved to the most possible extent in every possible way. Uh, Millard Erickson, or Millard Erickson, depending on how you pronounce his name, <clears throat> he, po- he po- makes that point in his uh, book, uh, Christian Theology. And he says that what it does mean is that total in the sense of the whole person, the whole person or the total person has been corrupted by the fall. It's depraved in that sense. Because when you look into the world, we do find people who are not saved who live, quote, moral lives. They seem to live decently. Um, but it does mean that their their faculties, their, their mind, their intellect, uh, heart, uh, even body have all been affected by the fall. And that's true for every person who has ever lived. So that's what total depravity there refers to, is the, the whole person being affected by the fall. So you is then unconditional election. This points to, to verses where God talks about calling for himself a people, uh, electing, and that it was a choice that God made, not that he somehow saw, okay, well, these people are going to choose me back, so I'm going to choose them. Uh, Jesus told his disciples in John 15, 16, is what he's speaking of the disciples there. He says, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit. That it was a, a choice that he made. Or consider Titus 3.5, where talking about that God, how God saved us and his grace, he says, He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, 
by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. That it was God's choice, that it wasn't because of anything that we have done. That he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. Uh, we read in Ephesians chapter 1. Um, and there's a whole debate about what does that mean? What does it mean that God elected? And that may be a topic for another episode. But when we read scripture, we do see that there is an elect. Those who have been called is a term that Paul uses in 1 Corinthians, especially 1 Corinthians 1, about to those who have been called. And that God did that. He called those who would believe, not on the basis of anything of who we are or how we would respond, but by his own grace, on His own, according to his own counsel, his will. Unconditional election. So total depravity, unconditional election, and then L, Limited atonement. And this is, and seeks to answer the question, who did Christ die for? Um, and according to this view is that Christ died for the elect. Those ones that God chose for, select, for salvation, those are the ones whom Christ died for. One of the verses that is used to support this is found in John 10, uh, John 10, 15. Jesus is given an extended analogy or illustration about him being the good shepherd and we and believers being his sheep. And he says in part of John 10:15, I lay down my life for the sheep. Talking about who did he who did he give his life for? Ephesians chapter 5 also talks about how Christ uh, gave himself up for the church. Those couple of verses that are, are used to talk about this we're going to circle back to limited atonement here in a moment to deal with that more in depth, but that's what that refers to. Who did Christ die for? Christ died for the elect. So total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, and an I, irresistible grace. Basically what this tenet is saying is that those whom God has called for salvation, they're going to come to salvation. It's not that God's going to call someone and they're going to say, uh, no, and, and that's it. Those whom God calls for salvation will receive his grace. Jesus said is in John 6:37 All that the Father gives me will come to me and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. So much packed into that verse is just a beautiful verse one of assurance that when we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ he's never going to cast us out. And by the way uh Dane Ortland's book Gentle and Lowly incredible book about the heart of Jesus uh talk has a chapter in there I think about this verse uh Really comforting and encouraging words uh, if you wanted to check that out. But another verse dealing with this idea of irresistible grace is one of a part of Paul's testimony, how he talks about how God had called him. In Galatians chapter 1, uh, verse 15, he says, a, a God who had set me apart even from my mother's womb and called me through his grace. We know that Paul was not seeking Christianity. He was actually uh, seeking to eradicate it. But then Christ called him, and there the, the vision, there on the road to Damascus, and then Paul was saved and because God had called him. The idea of irresistible grace, that when God calls someone to salvation, they're going to come. So total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and the final one, perseverance of the saints. This is basically the tenet, once saved, always saved. Basically that when someone puts their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, they're never going to ultimately or finally turn away. They may go through a season where they're struggling with doubt, maybe struggling with a besetting sin, 
uh, different issues, maybe a valley of just spiritual dryness, but they're never going to fully or ultimately turn away from the Lord. They're not going to lose their salvation. Now, there's a few verses that talk about this. Well, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 5, speaking of believers, says, Who are protected by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Our salvation is not dependent upon us. Just as we were not saved because of anything that we have done, that we did not earn our salvation, so we don't maintain or keep our salvation because of anything that we have done. We're protected by God's own power. He is preserving us. Uh, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 39 is another key verse here. Uh, speaking Again, speaking of believers. But we are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. Basically, that you know, believers are going to press on. They're not going to totally reject God, ultimately. That they are, uh, for all those who, pers- who truly believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, they're going to stay that way. They're never going to lose that. And there may be some imposters or some people who think they may be saved, but who haven't fully put their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's a different matter. But for all those who are truly saved, they're saved forever. So Calvinism sounds pretty biblical. Uh, there's a lot of verses that are used. We only covered a sampling of those. So is this helpful paradigm or helpful category to use? Or maybe does it take some things too far? Well, there's two uh, issues that I take up with Calvinism. One is that you can take each of these points too far. Uh, t- total depravity can be emphasized a little bit too much. And not saying that we're not corrupt. We, we are. We're separated from a holy God. The only way we can be reconciled to him is through the Lord Jesus Christ. Perseverance of the saints is one that can be taken too far where people who maybe who go through a season of dryness, they begin to question their salvation. They're wondering, okay, was I really saved to begin with? And all these struggles or maybe some judgment that can happen there. It's not saying that believers aren't going to struggle. Believers aren't going to fall into sin. What it means is that ultimately and finally, they're not going to turn away from God. They're going to persevere. They're saved forever because we're held in the hands of the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, John 10. Uh, irresistible grace um, can be emphasized to the point where it's almost like we don't have a, this choice in the matter at all. That we're just that God saves us and we're just passive in that in the sense of, uh, okay, we kind of wake up one day and we're saved. No, no, we have to choose Christ. There's many verses that point to that where, you know, like in Acts 16 where the Philippian jailer, he he comes in, he, he sees what the Paul and Silas were still there, even though their chains were fallen off and those, the doors were open. And he asks, what must I do to be saved? And, and Paul and Silas tell him there in Acts 16.31, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. That it was a choice the jailer had to make there. But the biggest issue I take up with Calvinism and other people take up with Calvinism as well, is this idea of limited atonement, that, that middle point. Who did Christ die for? According to a strict Calvinist understanding, Christ died for the elect. However, when we look at Scripture and compare different passages with each other, we do see that Christ died for his church. Christ died for the sheep. Christ died for the elect. Absolutely, that is true. But that's part of a larger group that Christ died for, and that's the whole world. That it should be unlimited atonement is what the term should be, because well, there's several passages that talk about this. Uh, Acts 17:30, Paul is standing there before this gr- this group of 
unbelieving Greeks there in Athens. He's preaching to them the gospel. And he says, Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent. He's not, it's not just given to, okay, those of you who are the elect, y'all follow me, and I'm going to teach you the gospel. It's a, a universal, it's a call that is given to all people that they should repent and turn to the Lord. Another key passage uh, is 1 John chapter 2, verse 2, speaking about the Lord Jesus Christ. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. Propitiation there being a, a, a word that means the satisfaction of God's righteous wrath. That Jesus paid for the sins, not just for those who would believe in him, but for the sins of the whole world. That verse very clearly teaches that. Or consider John chapter 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. There, the, the world referring to humanity. There's a few different uses of the word world in scripture, uh, being the universe, uh, being humanity, and then that ungodly mindset that is opposed to the Lord and his ways. Maybe we'll do another episode on that as well. But there, God's love wasn't just for the elect. It was for all humanity. And that whoever will believe in Christ, that they, can, they will be saved. And then one more verse, 1 Timothy 4.10, where uh, Paul is talking about his own ambition, uh, seeking to be faithful to the Lord, not getting caught up in just things of this life, but disciplining himself for the purpose of godliness. He says, for it is for this we labor and strive, because we have fixed our hope on the living God, who is the Savior of all men, especially of believers. Some debate about that verse, and that verse can certainly be taken out of context. But what it's saying is that in, in some way, God is a, a Savior of all people. He's sustaining. Christ holds all things together now. That if he didn't do that, no one could survive. So in, in that sense, he is the Savior, the preserver of uh, the rescuer in that sense of allowing the unbelievers to, to, to still live, holding us together, especially of believers, referring to there more the specific salvation in the sense of saving our souls. Uh, he's, that, he's that savior of believers. But there is a sense where his, his grace is applied to all people in, in that sense of, of preserving life, not salvation from sins automatically. It's not teaching a universalistic a salvation that everyone is eventually going to be saved. No, we have to choose the Lord, and there are going, there are have been many, and there still will be those who reject Him. But that is a, a verse again showing that God's grace being universally applied it, to an extent. There, but just emphasizing that point that it's not just the elect who who receive God's grace in that sense. <clears throat> so. I believe that the case can be made very biblically that Christ died for all people. Yes, only the, the elect, only those that God has chosen um, will be saved. And that's we don't fully comprehend how that, all that works. We know that God has chosen us for salvation. And we know that we have to respond. It's a choice that we have to make. Uh, many verses talk about that. Um, opening part of Gospel of John talks about to those who did receive him. To them, he gave the right to become children of God. That we have to receive receive his grace. We have to choose to believe. Um, Romans 10. For if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, 
you will be saved. We have to choose to confess him and to, and to believe. And God gives us that faith. And there's a lot we don't understand how that all works together. But it takes both. So a Calvinism, I feel like it takes some things too far and ignores some of that aspects of our free will and some of these passages that talk about uh, Christ dying for the sins of the whole world. But Calvinism does have a good heart. I believe it, it it's desires to preserve the sovereignty of God. It, it's trying to understand, okay, if God is all-powerful and if he has given a universal call and some reject that, does it mean that God is limited in his power? It's trying to reconcile that. And it's, it's a framework that tries to help understand how God is ultimately sovereign and yet not all people are saved. And what's important to recognize about this point is that Calvinism was not developed in a vacuum. Uh, no theological construct or, or term or category that I'm aware of has been fully come up with in a pure vacuum. And what I mean by that is that those who developed this doctrine of Calvinism, including John Calvin, were reacting to specific situations that they faced. And Calvinism, the five points of Calvinism, really developed in three stages, uh, beginning back at the early days of the church um, with a man named Augustine or Augustine. His name is pronounced different ways, but Augustine was a early church father and he he had a pretty dramatic conversion and totally changed his life uh, through the grace of the Lord. But he came up against a man named Pelagius and Pelagius was teaching a, a heresy there and says that, Pelagius taught that man was born in a neutral, basically in a neutral state, and through his own efforts, he could maintain a state of grace. As all, what basically what he's saying is that, okay, we were born in the sense in the state that we don't have a sin nature, and so that through our own efforts, if we try hard enough, we can maintain a sinlessness and be accepted before the Lord. We don't have to place our faith in Christ. Yeah, if you've sinned, you need Christ's forgiveness, but there is a possibility that you could remain sinless. And Augustine said, no, absolutely not. We are all born in sin. And yet the, the, what happened was, as he starts going back and forth with Pelagius, Augustine begins to become more and more adamant and vehement in how he uh, protects the sovereignty of God. Basically the point that we have absolutely nothing to do with our salvation. God saves us. Tried to show that, and emphasize that point that we did not earn our salvation or really take part in it in the sense of we didn't accomplish any acts. God did it all. And so that's that first stage with Augustine there fighting back against a Pelagius. Then we fast forward about a thousand years and come to the time of John Calvin. And John Calvin built upon Augustine's points. And what happened with Augustine, oh, with, with Calvin, excuse me, Calvin served there in Geneva. There was a lot of churches, a lot of gospel preaching, but not everyone in Geneva was turning to Christ. And so for, for, uh, for Calvin, the doctrine of election was a practical explanation for the uh, evangelistic successes and failures of the gospel in a thoroughly Christian context. Uh, that's from a book called Christian Historiography. There, it's a, the link, the um, citation there will be in the, in the description. It's little bit of a heavier book, but uh, talks about some different developments of a Christian theology throughout time. But the point that is being made there is that Calvin began to try to understand how, why is not everyone receiving the gospel? Or we're preaching it, we're preaching it faithfully, uh, preaching it throughout the week. How, why are people not receiving this? 
And so he began to look at scripture and saw this point about election, that God choosing some to salvation. And he began to, to say, okay, maybe this explains it. This Maybe this explains why not everyone is receiving it. And so he began to develop that more and build upon Augustine's points about the sovereignty of God. You know, building upon scripture, they weren't just coming up with something on their own. They were seeking to, to build upon scripture and to explain what was going on. So we fast forward a little bit about 60 years after the, after the life of Calvin, and we come to the Council of Dort. What happened here was the successors of John Calvin, uh, those who came after him, built upon Calvin's ideas, which were built upon Augustine. So a third development here, in reaction to a man named Jacob Arminius. And Jacob Arminius, what he, uh, he is sort of the founder of Arminianism, basically that the, the that talks about God giving a universal call to all for salvation and those who believe it's contingent entirely upon our choice and almost ignoring the point of God's election and God's sovereignty in, in this sense. So the council of door, the people who were there at council of door, they came together and said, we've got to oppose this. We feel this is dangerous. They feel it led to some, some dangerous practices. And so we have to do something. And it was at this council where the soteriological convictions of Reformed Orthodoxy were uh, were codified into five basic points. Again, from that book, Christian Historiography. Soteriological convictions, basically just meaning the doctrine of salvation. Who, what does it mean to be saved? How are we saved? Um, what's the effect of salvation? Just our understanding of what is salvation. Kind of a fancy word for that. But it's, it was the Council of Dort that that tulip was developed. Basically, that those five points that are now known as total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and perseverance of the saints. It's important to, to recognize that these men, they were reacting to situations that they faced. Augustine, Calvin, and those of the Council of Dort. Uh, they were either reacting to, what they, to a heresy... Um, to a situation they couldn't understand or something they thought might be dangerous, uh, dangerous theologically and how that might play out in practical ways. And so they're, they're reacting to each of these things, trying to understand from Scripture. It wasn't that they came with an unbiased, unbiased mind looking at Scripture and saying, oh, as I study Scripture, this is how I feel uh, the best explanation was. It was, the for them, it was what they thought was the best explanation based on their specific situation. So it's important for us to recognize that, that this is an interpretation. It's not the only interpretation that is out there. I believe there are other ways uh, of, a, of expressing an understanding of how God is absolutely sovereign. There is an elect, but we have a free choice that we have to choose him freely. Uh, C.S. Lewis does a great job talking about free choice in his book, Mere Christianity. I uh, highly recommend that. Um, there as well if you wanted to dig into that some more. So coming back to Calvinism, is it is it helpful? It can be. I think especially the ideas of the first two and the last two points, total depravity, unconditional election, irresistible grace, and perseverance to the saints. I believe those are all thoroughly biblically biblical points um, when they're understood in, in their proper way, you know, not taken to an extreme. But Calvinism as a whole I believe it ignores it, the, the point that God ha that Christ has offered salvation to all men, and that he died for the sins of the whole world, not just for the elect. 
And there's even some practical things that Calvinism can be taken too far. Uh, there's hyper-Calvinism out there that began shortly after the time of John Gill, there towards the beginning of the time of the Baptists, where basically it said, okay, well, if God is only going to say, only if if God is only going to save the elect, Christ only died for the elect. Um, we don't know who this elect are, so it, it would be wrong for us to preach the gospel to those who aren't part of the elect. So we're not really going to engage in missions. Um, <clears throat> uh, the book, I believe, it's the the history of the Baptists. Talk about that. That'll also be cited there. And that's one of the other developments there that. Calvinism, when taken to an extreme, not all Calvinists are like that, not at all. Um, so many Calvinists are very strong on missions. But when Calvinism is taken to an extreme or any man-made uh, construction or man-made interpretation uh, is taken to an extreme, it's going to introduce errors into how we live. So we need to, to we can come back to Scripture. We can hold our interpretations, our understanding. They help us to, to come to Scripture and to, to look at it. But we must recognize that we're not the ultimate authorities, that we had to submit ourselves to the Lord as we seek to grow in our understanding and submit to the Holy Spirit. So is Calvinism a helpful framework? Yes, I believe it can be at certain points. Um, maybe Calvinism for you in all points is helpful, and that, that can be your interpretation. There's, it's, uh, there's different ways we look at it, but I feel like it, uh, it definitely has some helpful points just I get, I get tripped up on, especially on that limited atonement aspect. Because we are called in Scripture to choose Christ, to turn back, to, to, to receive the offer of salvation that He gives, and then we're called to preach the gospel throughout the world. We don't know who's going to receive it. And so we need to preach the gospel um, through full-time missionaries, through us just where we're at, just as we're living our lives, building those connections with people, maybe even just in the home. You know, as you know, we raise families, we have children, uh, people we have into our homes, just wherever God has placed us, seeking to be a light for him to proclaim the gospel of what he has done. Yeah, so that's a Calvinism kind of in a nutshell, you could say. And um, yeah, you can let me know in a comment or something if you enjoyed this episode or if, uh, other ideas about uh, Calvinism or Reformed theology, because Calvinism is part of a greater a collection of interpretations known as Reformed theology. Maybe we'll look through some other aspects of that, like uh, amillennialism um, is another aspect of Reformed theology a lot of times. not Maybe not everyone who is Reformed has that view, but it's often there. And then there's some other aspects that we could look at as well. But, yes, yeah, so that's that. So I uh, appreciate people listening to the podcast. Uh, leave a, a comment or a rating if you enjoyed it. And until next time, read the Word and take your stand. Thank you for listening to the podcast. I hope it was an encouragement and a blessing. To find out more information about Here I Stand Ministries, check out hisministries.com. Scripture quotations are from the NASB, the New American Standard Bible, copyright 1971-1995 by the Lockman Foundation, used by permission, all rights reserved.